0: welcome to tanner talks about stuff that happened where tanner talks about stuff that happened today we're going to be talking about the woodstock festival of 1969 the woodstock arts and music festival taking place from august 15th to 18th of 1969 all originally slated to be taking place of august 15th to 17th but it took place until the 18th because of the rain so we're going to talk about that today now, for an introduction into how Woodstock exactly came to be, uh, we got to talk about the four dudes who kind of came up with the idea for it. So, this uh, Woodstock was organized by four guys, uh, Michael Lang, Artie uh, Kornfeld, Joel Rosenman, and John P. Roberts. Now, an interesting factoid about these four guys, the oldest of them was Joel Rosenman, who was 27. Um, now, these four guys put together the biggest, mu- most famous music festival in all of history, and... The oldest of them was 27 years old. So I think that's a cool factoid to remember when we're talking about how massive Woodstock turned out to be. Now, our story begins in earnest when uh, Joel Rosenman and John Roberts are in the process of building a large recording studio on the island of Manhattan, and Michael Lang and Artie Kornfeld's lawyer is doing some work on it. Um, Now... Lang and Kornfeld are looking to build kind of a studio in the woods. In the 1960s and 70s, there was this kind of, re- not really revival, but thing going on where a lot of recording companies were moving studios out into the middle of nowhere. Um, if you've seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, this is kind of just the idea that Queen had when they recorded their, their most famous album in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they wanted to get away from all the cities so they could focus on their music. So this is what's kind of going on in the music scene right now. So uh, Michael Lang and Artie Kornfeld want to capitalize on this, so they are thinking about building a recording studio in this little town called Woodstock, New York. Uh, now, that's where the Woodstock Festival gets its famous name. So, in late 1968, Michael, uh, Michael Lang, Artie Kornfeld, Joel Rosenman, and John Roberts meet up. They have a meeting. Uh, they decide, yes, let's do this thing. So, Woodstock Ventures, which is the company that has funded Woodstock throughout the years comes to fruition in January of 1969. Now keep in mind, this is January of 1969. The Woodstock Festival is slated to happen, uh, looking back historically, the Woodstock Festival happens nine months later. If we're talking about modern music festivals, these festivals typically take years, multiple years to plan out uh, on this magnitude. I mean, festivals that that consist of 10 bands take maybe a year at least to formulate now Woodstock exhibited, uh, dozens of artists and they put it together in nine months. So that's another thing to remember about just how crazy this whole thing was. If if there's one thread, that common thread that runs through this entire story, I just want to emphasize how absolutely maddening this whole process must have been for those four producers who were absolutely insane, but somehow pulled it off. At the meeting, Kornfeld and Lang proposed that they build this recording studio in the middle of nowhere in Woodstock, New York. Uh, Roberts and Rosenman were not quickly persuaded by this idea of building a, building a recording studio in the middle of nowhere where probably no one would pass by it, no one would know what it is, so they counter proposed this idea where, yes, let's build this recording studio, but Let's hold a huge inaugural concert so everyone knows exactly what we're doing here. And thus, the concept of the Woodstock Arts and Music Festival was born. As these four amigos departed on their great journey of entrepreneurship, there were pretty quickly some discrepancies in the way that they were taking approaches to this business model. Pretty quickly, um, John Roberts saw something that concerned him in Michael Lang. Uh, John Roberts was a very driven entrepreneur. He knew what needed to happen for this to succeed, for Woodstock to, as a whole to succeed. Um, and he didn't like how Michael Lang was taking a very lax approach to what was going on. He kind of had this idea of It's going to work out, so we don't have to worry about it. Well, Roberts had this idea of, well, if it's going to work out, we need to make it work out. Business doesn't just work. So pretty quickly, that was something that became concerning to Roberts. So when Michael Lang returned from Woodstock, New York, and not being able to find a location to have their big inaugural concert for a recording studio... Rosenman and Roberts took matters into their own hands and journeyed to upstate New York to find a place to put on this big show. Eventually, settling on a little town called Wallkill, New York, just about a hop, skip, and a jump from Woodstock, New York. Uh, they were pretty excited about this, but local residents were pretty quick to say, No, we are not having a hippie movement festival in our town. Uh uh-uh, uh, not happening. Sorry. After leasing the land, uh, In early July, the town board, made up of residents of the town, they passed a law requiring a permit for any gathering over 5,000 people. Uh, The festival was slated for about 50,000 to attend, and so it was illegal to have that festival in the town. Uh, The town said it was on the basis that planned portable toilets aren't going to meet town code. So it was back to the drawing board for the four, but little did they know that this was going to turn out to be an absolute publicity dream for their festival. Eventually, they found their way to a dairy farmer named Max Yazger. Max was born in New York City to Russian Jewish immigrants and had been a farmer his entire life. And by the time the festival took place, he was the most prominent milk and dairy farmer in the state of New York. He was 50 at the time the festival took place. Max graciously allowed the con- the festival organizers to use his land to create the Woodstock Festival and they set to work. Max's land had a natural bowl that had a backdrop of a lovely pond and so the festival organizers decided that was where they would build their stage and it would act as something of a natural amphitheater. The residents of, Be- of Bethel were not extremely thrilled about having this many hippies coming to their town. While... The organizers did say that they didn't expect more than 50,000 people. 50,000 is a lot, and the residents of Bethel, it's the small town in New York, um, were not very happy about that. Uh, signs were even erected on highways saying, Buy no milk. Stop Max's Hippie Music Festival. Even though the resident building ex- inspector approved the per- permits to have the festival happen, the Bethel town board still refused to issue them formally. Um... The organizers were were ordered to post stop work orders, but subsequently on August 2nd, mind you only 13 days before the festival was supposed to take place, the building inspector did inform Woodstock Ventures that the stop work order was formally lifted and the festival could proceed pending backing by the Department of Health and Agriculture, and they all had to get out of there by September 1st. I mean, that was still two almost almost two full weeks to get off the property, but still, that is a pretty small window back in 1969 to get all of that material off of the property and be out of Bethel with no trace by September 1st. Now, with only 13 days left to make this whole thing happen, the festival organizers were faced with a pretty difficult decision. Um, It was a very late change in venue, and there wasn't enough time to prepare, so... Three days before the event, the organizers felt they had two options. The first was to complete the fencing and the ticket booths, uh, because if they didn't, they would lose any profit and probably go into debt. Um, and the other option was getting all of their last resources and making sure the stage was completely finished by the time everyone arrived. Because if, if the stage wasn't finished, they would likely have some disgruntled bands and a large disgruntled audience for. You know, some of were traveling across the entire country to be at this festival. And if it wasn't completely perfect, that would be a rough situation to attend to by the organizers. So the decision was pretty much made for them. When a day before the festival started, they started a, the, the audience started arriving by the truckload, by the busload, by the tens of thousands. So the decision was made for them. And they got the stage done. And... On August 15th, 1969, the Woodstock Festival began. Richie Havens, Paul Williams, and Daniel Ben Zebulon took the stage with guitars and congas at 5.07 p.m. to to kick off the largest music festival in history. From a business standpoint, that first day, the festival became a complete disaster Because the organizers had decided to finish the stage instead of finish the ticket booths and the fencing, people just started walking in. And so within hours... Of the festival starting the organizers decided just to make it a free concert. Woodstock was completely free Now the problem with this becoming a free concert was not just that they were gonna lose a bunch of money But now that so many people around the nation knew that it was a free festival where so many big names like Jimi Hendrix and Creedence Clearwater Revival were going to be at They all just started heading in mass toward Bethel, New York, the tiny town of Bethel, New York. It's approximated that a million people were heading to go to the concert, and eventually, 50,000 people were originally supposed to attend the festival. That number snowballed to 10 times that. 500,000 people attended the Woodstock Festival, in and out. The festival attendance peaked at about 400,000, but it's approximately 500,000 attended through uh, coming and going, staying for a day, then leaving, things like that. But still 500,000 people at a festival that was supposed to only hold 50,000. It's unbelievable. So that presented a lot of other problems. First of all, the concessions that were supposed to be sold at the festival were not adequate for the amount of people who were going to be there. And they ran out of food at the end of the first day. This festival was supposed to go for 48 more hours. And after the first day, food was gone, completely gone. There was no food left. What were they going to do? To add insult to injury, all of the roads for miles around Bethel, New York, were pretty much parking lots. You couldn't get in, you couldn't get out. It was, the parking was a disaster because, again, they did not plan for this many people. So, all these hippies were parking on the sides of the road and just walking to the festival. And when there you couldn't park on the side, you just parked in the middle of the road. There was no reason to go in or out. You were going to the festival. So, even if they wanted to bring more food in, it couldn't get there. Two days into the festival... Sullivan County declared a state of emergency. At one point, you had to wait 30 minutes to get water and at least an hour to use the toilet. There were inadequate sanitation services to service the entire party. So what happened next? Well, after Sullivan County declared a state of emergency, uh, those emergency powers uh, were used to create funding, enough funding, to... Get food into the festival. Food began to be airlifted by helicopter, military helicopter, into the festival, so people had enough to eat, so there there would be no deaths on the land. The residents of Bethel, New York, banded together to start uh, creating assembly lines of sandwiches and hot dogs and all kinds of different foods that were sent uh, that were walked into the festival, so people had enough to eat. These same people who were very ...against the idea of this enormous festival came together to create enough food to feed the hippies. Isn't that ironic? Along with the food that was airlifted, there was also a lot of first aid and water airlifted uh, by the ton into the festival. Uh, interesting enough, I actually have read a story now of a woman who, uh, went into labor during the festival and was airlifted out of the festival to a nearby hospital where she delivered a child. Uh, that's, that's a cool story. There's also another story of a woman delivering a child in the back of a car at the Woodstock Festival. Imagine what it would be like to know that you were born at the 1969 Woodstock Festival. Fascinating stuff. Love the hippie movement. Things were looking Okay. Until day three, it began to rain, and it began to rain hard. I'm not sure if any of you are from upstate New York or from the northeast, but when it rains, it can really pour. And this particular rainfall was very hard for the season, so it turned the entire festival grounds into a sea of mud. Um, this is where we get those famous pictures of the entire crowd opening up to create something of a slip and slide, where pe- where people took all of their clothes off and dove into the mud, sliding down and getting coated in mud. And what what's funny is that these people loved the rain; they loved the weather, and they celebrated this rain. It it, it enhanced the atmosphere rather than detracted from it. Everything at the festival grounds was completely soaked. And yet, all of these people who attended the Woodstock Festival reveled in every moment of it. They took the opportunity to rinse all their clothes off that had been they had been wearing for days on end. Uh, they filled jugs of ra- with rainwater, uh, so they could drink. And it and the rain did not destroy the festival. It it became iconic for it. And uh, though the music had to stop for a while it resumed uh, several hours several hours after the rain finished uh and c- the festival eventually on the fourth day which that's why i said the festival was supposed to go three days but it ended up going four it go- went on to uh early monday morning um Jimi Hendrix closed out the festival with his amazing rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner on his electric guitar, kind of what people refer to as a psychedelic version of the song. He closed off the festival and everybody started going home. Though the crowd peaked at 400,000, by the time Jimi Hendrix started doing his set, it was it's said to only about be about 30,000 people who were still watching. But still, 30,000 people! I mean, the arena in my hometown, the largest arena where you can have people holds 18,000 people. That's, that is, that is just more than half of the, the last amount of people who were watching Jimi Hendrix on that final cold morning. And I mean, that's saying something because 18,000 people is a lot of people. So I can't imagine why I can't imagine 30,000 people. And I mean, I can't imagine 400,000 people, but sources refer to that 30,000 people as a significantly smaller crowd. So, the fact that 30,000 is a small is a significantly smaller crowd, that's really saying something about how big that Woodstock crowd was. An interesting fact about Woodstock something to speculate on is that even though there were food shortages, there were sanitation woes, there was first aid woes, it was overcrowded, it was hot, it was an enormous traffic jam. Some of the people couldn't even hear the music because the speakers were only designed to be able to be heard by 200,000 people. And, I mean, double that attended the festival. So, even despite all of that, there's not any record of a single violent incident occurring at the festival. It was all peace and love. I mean, all of the, even, even the posters uh, for the Woodstock Festival in 1969 say three days of peace love and music and it really was that it was three days of peace love and music sure there was a lot of drugs and there was a lot of sex and there was a lot of that wild stuff that footstock uh, footstock woodstock is known for but for some reason it all worked out and it's, it's remembered as one of the most peaceful gatherings in all of music history On the final day of the festival, uh, Max Yasger, the one who was um, lending the land for the festival, got up on the stage, got the microphone, and said to all these people, a half, uh, this is a quote, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music, and have nothing but fun and music, and I say God bless you for it. Max Yasger, he's a cool guy. Nearly 43 years after Woodstock, a woman named Susan Rodriguez uh, gives an oral history of the Woodstock Festival. Now, this can be found on YouTube. You can just look up Susan history, uh, uh, Susan, excuse me, Susan Rodriguez, oral history of the Woodstock Festival. Um, And on it, in, in this, she says, I remember that there was nothing to be afraid of. I was with people and they felt like family. Everyone was watching out for everybody. If you really needed to find your friends, they would announce it on stage. And Susan, I believe she was 15 at the time of the festival. Uh, so for a woman that young to be at this huge, scary festival full of 400,000 strangers you've never met in your life, all these people doing drugs and having sex all around you, for her to be completely unafraid was, is a very interesting insight to what the Woodstock Festival was truly like. Well, eventually, Woodstock ended. Completely came to an end. Crazy to think that something that enormous would have a beginning and it would have an end. It's wild. After the festival, the organizers were pretty dazed when it happened. At the time, they didn't really realize that they had created something that would go down in history as probably the most popular music event ever they had other things on their mind pretty much what pretty much the most important being they had a lot of debt. There were about 70 lawsuits that had been filed against them because they had been trying to put the festival on, uh, on people's land. Uh, some of the concert goers had vandalized different places around this town. They caused a lot of grief to people who didn't want all these hippies in their town. And so uh, they had about a million dollars worth of lawsuits Um, and because they hadn't charged any ticket sales, they pretty much had no money to show for it. Woodstock Ventures was effectively bankrupt. But they'd made a documentary of the festival, and this documentary, in the coming years, it was released in 1970 and became a complete box office hit And the box office profits covered pretty much all of their debt. By the time everything was pretty much paid off, they were still about $100,000 in the red. But that is a far cry from the million dollars that they were at when uh, at the end of the festival. So things turned out okay for the festival organizers. And in fact, going down in history, turns out it's pretty profitable. So... Uh, they continued to have Woodstock festivals, uh, at anniversaries. There was a 10th anniversary in 1979 where Richie Havens performed, and then there was a 25th anniversary in 1994, but it's best if we don't talk about that because there was rioting, there, it was, it, it just was kind of a mess, so we're not going to go into that one. Uh, and then, uh, pretty famously recently, they tried to have a 50th anniversary Woodstock festival, and... Um, I was actually going to go to that Woodstock Festival, uh, but pretty quickly it turns out that, uh, it was organized by Michael Lang, the guy who organized the original Woodstock Festival, but it turns out that this Woodstock Festival was pretty shoddily put together and it was canceled, um, unfortunately. But Woodstock has gone down in history as the most famous, uh, music festival in history, and it was listed in Rolling Stone magazine as one of the 50 moments that defined rock and roll. So that is pretty cool. And uh, this has been a short history of the Woodstock Festival of 1969. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you for joining me on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened, where Tanner talks about stuff that happened. This is the very first episode. This is kind of just a crash course. I'm just testing things out. We'll see how it goes from here. Uh, thanks Thanks for joining me on the show. See you later.